0: So when you have someone like Joan of Arc who is fighting the Battle of Orléans 400 years later, mm-hmm. it's all because she's trying to help the French kick the English out, which all stemmed from William the Conqueror coming from Normandy in 1066.
1: Right. Wow.
0: So it, hundreds of years of change to the language, to change to the politics of Europe, all stemmed from this one year in Anglo-Saxon
1: England. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello readers. Thank you for listening to episode 2 of season 6. Today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Andrew Varga. He is the author of a new time-hopping series for young adults. The first 2 installments are out and they are called The Last Saxon King and Celtic The Celtic Deception. So, they are just fascinating and intriguing, and my conversation with Andrew was so interesting. He is going to share a lot of history with us and also some of some exciting stories from his life, um, as well as reading to us in Old English. So, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode, and without any more rambling from me, we will get right to it. Here's my conversation with Andrew Varga. Andrew, thank you for joining me on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, your debut novel, The Last Saxon King, released last March, and then the next installment in the series came out August 15th. Um, That's called The Celtic Deception. Can you tell me about this series? Okay,
0: so it's a young adult historical fiction time travel series. Right. Uh, It takes a modern-day teenager. Um, He's 16 in the first book and sends him back in time to 1066 England. Mm. And there he discovers that he belongs to a long line of what I call time jumpers, who are kind of like a secret society whose sole mission is to fix glitches in the past that threaten to disrupt the time stream. So he belongs to this group, but his father has never told him about it. So he he's had a lot of training and homeschooling throughout his life that's kind of prepped him for this. Mm-hmm. But he never understood why he was homeschooled this way, why he had all these different sort of things taught to him. So he ends up totally unaware and un or, and surprised that he's now in 1066 England, doesn't believe it at first, but he slowly starts figuring things out as he goes, kind of understands his mission, And there's also an overarching storyline as well about a rogue group of time travelers who has their own ulterior motive. And we find out that's kind of why Dan's not being told about any of this. So -hmm. there's a struggle uh, going on in the time traveler community of what they should do, what their actual role should be. And so that kind of ties all the series together. And you have Dan's individual adventures to Anglo-Saxon England in book one, Celtic Wales in book two, Mm. and uh, Mongolia in book three, which comes out next year, kind of um, carrying the story along. And I say Dan, but he also gets joined by um, a fellow time traveler in in the books named Sam.
1: Okay, cool. So I read the beginning of the book it's really intriguing of um the last saxon king and my son is reading it now he's so he's like keeping me um abreast of what's happening as he reads <laughs> i've been asking him about it so i'm just curious what inspired this series
0: well i graduated um university uh with a history degree i have i've always loved history i yeah uh, even since the age of like 5 6 i I I would watch history specials, and I'd be taking history books out from the library. So it's always been a passion of mine. And my kids, when they were younger, like they're all in their twenties now, they they saw this passion of mine, and they would show me books that they thought were historically um, relevant that they were reading.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, they'd come up, "Hey, Dad, look at this great history book we found." And I'd read the stories that were being generated for young adult audiences that were supposedly historical fiction, mm-hmm. and I found that the history eh, wasn't really that much of a focus they they would call it historical fiction, but mm-hmm. the accuracy wasn't there and me being a history geek, I thought that you know young adults deserved a bunch of books that actually had accurate history right so I, I decided, oh, if I write a series and I make it time travel. I can start putting it in all these spots that I find cool. Like, you know, these are, these are locations that interest me and peoples that interest me in events. And I put it with a young adult rapper, and I get to basically blather on about history for 300 pages.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great. So what makes you think, why do you think that historical fiction is an important genre for young readers?
0: Well, there's so much that can be learned from historical fiction, uh, just even attitudes of people of the time, because mm-hmm. we, we leave in, live in an age where people are, for the most part, tolerant. Um, the sexes, are, for the most part, are equal. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, there are imbalances. Unfortunately, there is some racism and sexism still prevalent, and right. we don't live in an ideal society. But things were a lot worse in other time periods and you can kind of understand where the views of today have kind of stemmed from by going through history, even things like borders. Like why are these people fighting over this one particular border in this country?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, so much of what happens on the news today, um, whether it be warfare, um, racial antagonism, um, it all stems from history. right? And I think reading good historical fiction can reveal so much about our past life, which in turn tells us about our present.
1: Mm, that's so interesting that you mention that because that's one of the things I harp on in, on the show. And we'll get more into that at the end, but um, that kind of foreshadows my future question (laughs) (laughs) so um i love that that's great so and i i personally don't know much about the time period of the last saxon king what can we learn about anglo-saxon history that applies to today's culture
0: well that that's great because if you think about it that the last saxon king like why is english such a weird language for instance Yeah, (laughs) Um, it's probably one of the hardest languages to learn because it's such a mess. Um, You can take all these different letters and depending on the word you put them in, they're -hmm. pronounced differently. Mm -hmm. And it's all because our language was originally uh, Germanic-based, pure Germanic. So at the very beginning of Last Saxon King, I actually have a snippet from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which shows what the language looked like. I also have a few sentences of original Anglo-Saxon um, dialogue within the text. Mm-hmm. And that's what it all looked like. And all the letters were pronounced and everything. And then when the Normans came along at the end of the book, they all spoke French.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they brought their French to sit on the top of the English or the Germanic Anglo-Saxon language. And then they brought in the Latin of the church. right? And so you have this incredible fusion of different languages that kind Mm -hmm. of made English what it is today. And also the the importance of the time period also is that because the Norman French came over, they actually involved England in European politics for the next 500 years, basically. So when you have someone like Joan of Arc who was fighting the Battle of Orléans 400 years later, Mm -hmm. it's all because she's trying to, help the French kick the English out which all stemmed from William the Conqueror coming from Normandy in 1066
1: right wow so
0: it hundreds of years of change to the language to change to the politics of Europe all stemmed from this one year in anglo-saxon England
1: wow that's so interesting I had not thought about how much it affects everything thereafter. And the language, too. I, I mean, I learned some of that as an English major in college, but it, that was a long time ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> I understand that you think that a quick history lesson a day can go a long way for young learners and their imaginations. So, can you expand on that idea? Well,
0: the goal of something like The Last Saxon King is to tell a good story, Mm-hmm. But at the same time, have little events happening within the book that have people say, "Did that really happen?" Is this true? Yeah. Um, I remember when my son was reading one of the earlier drafts. he kind of just stopped, came over to me and said, "Dad, did this really happen?" It's like, "Yeah, go mm-hmm. go look it up some more. you know Like <laughs> yeah, I, I want people to look at stuff and go, "Did this really happen?" And then do some research on their own and challenge me on it. And hopefully just go down this wonderful wormhole of, oh my goodness, I never knew this happened. I never knew this happened. Right. And just learn. Yeah. Because there's so many fascinating stories out there.
1: Yeah, I love it when a book makes me look up something to learn more about it. That's one of the great things about historical fiction. Because it just brings it alive. And you want to know more about something that you have never thought that much about.
0: Yeah, and that's great. There's so many stories that seem fantastical to us nowadays, mm-hmm. like heroic deeds of valor or these cunning plots that you know were, were done in the back rooms, and you know they're they're true. Mm-hmm. So to to bring them to light into a book and have someone go, oh my goodness, and then learn about them some more, it's I I think you know in in the grand scheme of things, it might not you know, help them get a corporate job if that's their dream, but I think it still makes them bigger as a person to know, hey, you know, this did happen. This, you know, this is such an interesting part of history. This is, you know, a great part of the past.
1: Right. Yeah, for sure. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you became a published author. I mean, you mentioned to me that you work in tech, and I understand you majored in English and history. Is that right? Yes. So how did what was this long and winding road to? Oh now? Boy. you have this, a couple okay, books yeah. out.
0: Yeah, so the the full long and winding road involves me graduating from university, degree in hand, and into the heart of a recession. Hmm. Um, and I ended up working as a waiter just to pay the bills. Right. And I did that for too long, but. And so, as I'm kind of all sad at myself, oh no, I can't get a good job, I thought, I got to start writing. I mm-hmm. got to do something with my degree. Otherwise, it's stagnating. So, I started writing short stories, um, wrote a fantasy comedy that didn't really go anywhere. But yeah. I, I spent a good amount of time kind of honing my craft. Mm-hmm. And once I kind of ended up in the corporate world. I was still writing constantly. I had an hour and a half commute on the train every day back and forth. Mm -hmm. So I had lots of time to sit with my computer and just write. And by this time, the idea for the series had started. And it was that, you know, all that writing, all that, you know, time spent was really beneficial. Like even all this bad stuff I wrote, Mm -hmm. it's like drawing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm a, I'm a terrible drawer. But if I were to practice every day, even all the bad drawings that I just crumple up and throw away, I'd eventually become a good drawer,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or a good artist. So it, it's the same with writing. You know, yeah. all the bad things I wrote, all the horrible short stories that you know deserve to just line a fish. Um, they they all help to make me perfect my craft. And then eventually, uh, I had the first book out, and I started contacting agents. I started contacting publishers, and like most writers, I was getting rejections left, right, and center. Right. But I knew at this point that I had a story and a series that was going to work. So I just kept writing and writing and writing. Mm -hmm. I finished the second book, the third book, the fourth book. Oh, you're that far
1: ahead. That's great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've actually finished book six, and I'm working on book seven right now.
1: Oh my goodness
0: which is the final one.
1: Okay, 7 books in the series, great.
0: Yeah, so it's because I spent probably a decade full of rejection. Mm-hmm. But I didn't let that get me down. I just kept writing. Right. So that that's why the books have the ability to come out pretty quickly now. Yes. You know, I'm I'm not following the George R R Martin path.
1: Well, that's great. So then how did the first how did you finally find the publisher? Did you was it through an agent or
0: so I belong. I've belonged to this writing group. I've belonged to it for probably two decades now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now the writers, the, the writers who are members of the group, have varied over time. But there's been right. a, a few solid members who have stayed for probably the last decade. One of them had an agent. He gave me a referral to this agent. This agent, in turn, found the publisher.
1: That's wonderful. So it's been. It looks like it's been really well received. And you've had a lot of like book signings and events. Has it? What has it been like compared to? I mean, did you dream about this f- for two decades, or were you pretty pragmatic about the whole thing?
0: Um, to me, it's always it was. I've had two views. It, it's almost like when you buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> You know, you buy a lottery ticket and you have that one part of yourself that's going, oh, I'm going to win it big and, you know, cars, mansions, planes. And then there's the other part of you that says, well, I'm probably going to win two bucks if I'm lucky. (laughs) So it's been the same with writing. There's always been that dream part of me that's been saying, okay. They're going to, someone's going to pick up the book and go, oh my goodness, this is, mm-hmm.
1: That's brilliant. That's you know, the I've
0: next J.K. Rowling, Colleen, Hoover, you know, Stephen King combination all <laughs> together in one. Right. And then there's movies and book deals and everything. And then there's the pragmatic side, which is, all right, there's, you know, for every Stephen King, there's about 5 million not Stephen Kings.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, maybe even more. So... <laughs>
1: Because <laughs> they're all the ones that are never published. So exactly.
0: So I, you know, of, of course I had the dream, but I was also looking at the the reality, and it's I'm, I'm working on turning the, you know, the the hard work, and okay, I got to do the grind and mm-hmm. go to the book tours and uh, events where only a few people show up, but right, you know, and build that audience, get people to read my book, and yeah, build that awareness of it.
1: Right. Well, it's, it's hard work. It is. And, but you're doing well. I mean, I don't remember how many reviews your book had on Amazon, but it looked like a good number. So you should be, you know, feeling good about yourself. Yeah. It's, it's getting there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It takes time. It all does. So I was, I was telling you before we started recording that I was looking at your website and I saw that you have some really great stories So I was wondering if you could share more details with your listeners. Particularly, you said that you unfortunately never visited Rome because you were kicked out of Italy for trying to bring some recently purchased swords into the country. And I know you wrote an article about this, but maybe you can share a little more. Okay, this was in my backpacking
0: days. This was 1991. I was a young guy backpacking through Europe. (laughs) And as I've already established, I'm a history geek. Yes. So I was in Toledo, Spain. Uh, before Mm. this and toledo is a great place to buy swords and other medieval paraphernalia they have these shops lining like lining the streets where you just walk in and if you love medieval weapons you just Mm. sit there in awe with your eyes glazing over for a bit so i ended up buying uh three really nice swords uh since i was backpacking i I had them in just like a cardboard box wrapped and taped and everything. And I was kind of slugging them around with me wherever I went. Yeah. I ended up in Monaco and I was going from Monaco to Italy. So this was before Mm. the days where you could just travel anywhere. You Mm -hmm. you still had to go through the borders of um, France to Italy. Okay. So the Italian border guards, they asked me what's in the box i opened it and as soon as i opened it they just yoinked my passport brought me off the train dragged me down to the bowels of their station where their chief border guard officer was and he didn't speak english i didn't speak italian so we both managed to communicate through some mangled french that he was saying that the swords were not allowed in italy you know, I, I was welcome to come into Italy. There was nothing I had okay. done wrong. Just the swords were not allowed. Mm-hmm. But I'd have to leave Italy, put the swords back in a uh, locker, even France or Monaco. And only then would I be allowed. Oh, wow. And they made sure to march me to the next train going back to France. And only <laughs> then when they saw me getting onto the train with my swords, did they pass me my passport back. And then the door closed behind me and... There went Italy,
1: so they were really concerned about these swords, I yes, think. yes,
0: and they're just they're they're replica swords. They're dull. Right. Like,
1: they thought you were a you know time I, yeah, I didn't know what they
0: expect something. yeah, I didn't know what to they'd expect me to do, like run around, you know three swords in a box, like hitting people with the box. I'm not sure,
1: <laughs> oh my goodness, but that's a great story. and yeah. you've never you've never made it back to Rome.
0: No, I never made it back to Italy because I I didn't want to leave my swords in a locker and then have to like, you know, find that locker a week later or whatever. So, no, I've never been back to Italy, and that was uh, that was thirty years ago. So, if anybody on the Italian tourist bureau is listening to the uh, you know podcast and wants to send me to Italy, you know,
1: (laughs) that would be nice.
0: Yeah, it would be really nice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow, and and so along the same lines with medieval weaponry. Um, your wife was wounded by a halberd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did this come about? All
0: right. So a halberd is a axe on a long stick.
1: Oh my goodness. Uh, it
0: was, it was very popular with the Swiss guards for the Pope and things like that. Um, and I happen to have one. And to <laughs> you this day. to have one? Yes.
1: Did you buy it in Toledo? So?
0: No, no, no. Okay. I don't even know where I picked up my halberd. It, I, I did get it here in, in Canada somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, can't remember how I ended up to be in you know the proud owner of a halberd. Yeah, but um, we had a pass through door going to from one room to a, a bathroom, mm-hmm. and to this day, my wife and I still disagree over who put the halberd lying there in oh. the door frame. Oh no. I say, no, I would never do such a thing. A halberd <laughs> is a dangerous weapon. I keep insisting she did it while vacuuming. But, anyways, she opened the door. The halberd fell out and just oh. whoosh, landed on her foot, and oh had to take her to the hospital for stitches. The doctor, who was asking what happened, and we explained, he even was looking at us and. Quizzically, and he was very surprised because he had played some Dungeons and Dragons in his lifetime, so he knew what a halberd was. Yeah, he had just never be- treated a halberd wound before.
1: Wow, that is that's crazy. Well, I hope it healed completely, and
0: there there is a small scar to that's this small. day. Oh, wow, and as well as the argument of who put the halberd right. there in the doorway.
1: <laughs> that's ongoing, right?
0: Yeah, that will never end.
1: Mm-hmm. It was her. <laughs> Okay. Well, since she's not here to defend herself, I guess I have to take your word for it. Exactly. Would I lie to you? <laughs> Never. So, um, you also mentioned in your bio that you, and you mentioned before about, um, you know, in The Last Saxon King, you talked about the Old English, um, but you know how to read Old English, I guess, right? Yes. And you translated Beowulf, which I'm, I'm a sucker for old English. I I haven't read Beowulf in a long time, but and I never read it in Old English because I don't know how. Um, but do you? And I can cut this out if you don't want to do it. But just wondering, like, do you have anything you can recite or read in Old English? Just short, something short.
0: All right. You know what? Let me just grab a copy of my book here. Oh, yay! Which has the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle at the very beginning
1: mm.
0: with the translation at the bottom. Right. But here we go. I'll read these few lines. Okay. Tha cum Willem, Earl of Normandy, into Pephonese on St. Michael's Massafen, son of the fair war in Warton Castle and Hasteningport. This were the Harold, a king in Gekud, he, ye Gagare, the Mikelin here, come him to Gannis at Thara Haran Appledran. Willam him come on an war, are his folk ye fulgur war. Axa king, they are him sweet, the herlico with feat with the manam, they him, your last and woldan. There were Michael well, slay on an eitre
1: Wow. <laughs> I love that. I, it takes me back to, I think my sophomore year of college, when our professor read something in old English. And we just all, it's, it's stunning. It's Beautiful. I mean it doesn't when you look at it and try to read it, if you don't know how, it doesn't have the same effect as hearing how it was supposed to sound.
0: Well well, there isn't really even a how it's supposed to sound, because no one Mm -hmm. no one knows for sure how it sounded. There's just kind of a linguists say this is most likely and you know, based on linguistic patterns and things like that, this is what it should sound like.
1: Yeah, but it's just beautiful. So you said you're working on The seventh book in this series. Yes. And that's the final one. Um, What do you think you'll write after that?
0: Oh, geez. That has actually been kind of a dilemma for me for the last little while. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a nice dilemma to have. It's like, oh, I finished my book seven, my seventh book. What do I do now? Um, I keep tossing around a few ideas, but nothing concrete yet. There's in a. If I never actually think of anything, I'll probably just end up fine-tuning that fantasy comedy I wrote to right, start my yeah. <laughs> start my career and see if someone actually wants it.
1: Yeah, you could go back to that. So, this is a question I ask all my guests. And as I mentioned before, you kind of foreshadowed it a little bit before. But how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Um.
0: I think one thing in particular is that it shows how difficult life was in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've had kids. I have kids in their 20s. When they were 15 and 16 and stuff like that, they're complaining, oh, no, this happens to me. This happened to me. (laughs) It's like some of the things I would just shake my head at. It's like, really? This is your biggest complaint in life?
1: Yeah, I have teenagers Uh, right now. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You know, this is your major trauma. I I actually did a um, presentation to a library about a month ago where I was talking about life in Anglo-Saxon England. Mm -hmm. And I was explaining to the teens and adults who were present that in Anglo-Saxon times, for instance, people were considered adults by about the age of 12 to 14 Mm -hmm. and married around the age of 16. And by adults, that meant you had to grow your own food, slaughter your own animals, plow your own fields, build your own house. <laughs>
1: Things that adults today don't do. <laughs> yeah,
0: even at, exactly. Even adults don't do that. So it, it kind of gave a bit of a shock to the people in the audience that 16-year-olds are getting married, having kids, plowing mm-hmm. fields, building houses. And when I'm talking building houses, I also emphasize the fact that include chopping down the tree, splitting the tree into boards. Right. You know, it, because there were no power tools and all this, so everything was done by hand, so I think um, teaching history also gives an appreciation of where people are nowadays mm-hmm. that for for the most part, at least us in Western society, we live pretty comfortable lives, yeah, you know, we're not worried about the crops failing. You know, in, in our backyard, mm-hmm. you know, or foxes stealing all our chickens and things like this, or the neighboring state or province uh, declaring war on us because the ruler just decides he wants to expand his empire. You know, we we have a fairly stable life for for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's still, everybody still has struggles, of course. But we don't have them compounded by the struggle just to exist and be that it, our ancestors did.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great way to look at it. It's so interesting when you go back that far in history; the the contrast is striking.
0: Well, well, I actually had a um, person contact me. Uh, she wrote a post on Twitter about the book too. She she's Italian. Mm. And she was saying something along the lines of, "She's Italian, very proud of her Italian heritage, including uh, her Roman ancestry," and it made her feel sad to read a viewpoint from the view of the conquered, which is in book two, the Celtic deception. Oh. So it even brought that to right. her, you know, the, because the Celts as a people were pretty much cult- culturally wiped out by the Romans.
1: Right. That's so interesting because I've heard a lot lately about how reading fiction in general increases our empathy, and that's a wonderful example of how that takes place.
0: Oh, yeah. And and even with regards to empathy, there's so many, as I said, we have it a bit easier nowadays. So, to read stories about people even 30 years ago, 40 Mm -hmm. years ago, um, struggling for freedoms or struggling for... Um, civil rights, or you know, right. just struggling for whatever injustices were going against them. And I'm not even talking, as I said, a thousand years ago. Right. Just even recently, there's there's our society because we have it a bit easier. It was on the backs of all these people who fought mm-hmm. to make it so.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true, and we take it for granted sometimes. Yeah. Well, Andrew, this has been a fantastic conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you?
0: Let's see. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I have my website, Mm andrewvargaauthor.com.
1: Well, this is great. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, friends, I know you enjoyed that conversation with Andrew. It was just fascinating for me to talk to him, and I'm sure it was fascinating to listen to, or at least I hope so. Just to remind you of some ways you can help the show, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your pods, and then if you can leave a rating and review, that would be super helpful. It really helps people find the show who might enjoy it. As always, the show notes live at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's alisontrea com slash B-L-O-G. And in the, in the show notes, you can find links to um, Andrew Varga's website, as well as his books, and also links to um, join my newsletter list and to join the group on Facebook, and to follow me on Instagram. So make sure you visit the show notes because that will really help you get connected and make sure that you do not miss anything that's coming out of Historical Fiction Unpacked. Now you can still join the Patreon and help support us financially. You can find that at patreon.com slash Treat, but you have to spell Allison correctly. It has one L, not two. And um, you can always get there from the show notes. As well, another reason to visit the show notes. Now, as always, my friends, I want to leave you with a quote. And this one comes from Edmund Burke. In history, a great volume is unrolled for our instruction, drawing the materials of future wisdom from the past errors and infirmities of mankind. So chew on that a little bit, my friends, and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week.